All right. Welcome to Wednesday Night Musical Osmosis. I am your host, Nick, the saucy one cat source, humble servant of rock and roll. And I am broadcasting to you live from the land of meth and honey, Careville, Tennessee. And I also want to introduce my wonderful, my sexy, my multi-talented <laughs> producer, the Ike to my Tina, Daniel Prizer. Hi, darling. I, how's it going, sweetheart? You feeling any better? <laughs> I, I, I'm feeling a little bit better. Um, although, you know, I've got to do something for you for the uh, music. I can never tell if it's just kind of fuzzing out on my headset or if it's fuzzing out for everybody else. So yeah, that's why I Christmas. don't like playing anything, even on the music show, because the dashboard or whatever's going on with it. I apologize yeah, for whatever play. interference that's getting. Anyways, you guys have just heard one of my all-time favorite bands, The Gits. They're an amazing band with an amazing story. In a few minutes, we will be talking with Steve Moriarty, drummer of The Gits, also of Evil Stig, Dancing French Liberals of 48, and a lot of other bands. And um, I know a lot of you are probably wondering why I haven't done a Wednesday night show in a while. And there's actually two reasons. Uh, one reason is we are insanely busy with our other two shows. We've got a Sunday political show, which is the Ignorance Equation, of course, and then our Friday show, which is our Friday night drunken trivia, where I go head-to-head for drinks. And... Um, so Wednesday show is a little bit different. All these shows actually have a purpose. The Sunday show, The Ignorance Equation, which is a show that started it all, those shows I do strictly to talk about politics and current events. I usually have guests on who I think are compelling for our listeners and have what I like to call the big knowledge, or I'll have people that I grew up enjoying and admiring that are you know steeped a little bit in the political, like when we had Christopher Titus on, or someone that I newly have discovered which is Chris from Don't Worry About Your Government. So that's the function of that. And then the Friday show is just about having fun and being able to drink on the air and play people in trivia. But the Wednesday show, that has a special place in my heart because it is strictly about me interviewing bands that have had a huge impact on me as an artist, as a musician. And um, I was in the band, most of you know, for five years, even Steven. I did most of the writing. And I didn't just wake up and know how to write. I was influenced like anyone else. And I was influenced by bands like The Gits, kind of in their writing, like very honest type of writing style. And these are the people that I like talking to on the um, show. And I know, Danielle, me and you have gone round and round more than once about Mm -hmm. booking bands that I wasn't familiar with. Mm -hmm. And I think what makes the show compelling, what makes people listen and really dig the show, is I talk to people that I'm passionate about talking to so if you just book some random band like, I don't know, Sad Kids Picking Daisies, like some emo band. I, I know. Or a band that I'm familiar with. I can't, I like, just get on and go, well, Sad Kid, why are you so sad? You know, yeah. I have to have something to talk about. And plus, I don't really have to do a lot of research on the Wednesday show because I've been listening to these bands for years, so I kind of already know everything about them. And, you know, at this age, I'm in my 40s now, and I feel a little bit beyond creating music. I feel like I said everything that I needed to say through music in my youth. And, you know, since I can't really write a song about my life experience now and connect with a 15 or 20-year-old, like I'm not going to write a song like, I'm late on the mortgage and tomorrow I have a prostate exam. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like no 20-year-old kid's going to care about that song. 
And that's basically what I have to say today beyond the politics, and I can't get that uber political in a song. So what I like to do for the generation behind me, what I think is kind of my obligation to do, is to write my blog and to do the show in a way that contributes to this thing I love called music. And hopefully I can impart some of that knowledge and experience to the people behind me, the generation behind me, and they can kind of gain the, you know, some kind of perspective through those I interview and through what we've all been through in this scene. So that's, that's what I kind of feel is my place in the musical universe. And plus, I'm not arrogant enough to think I can speak for the youth of today. So that's kind of why I just do these kind of shows, put my story out there, talk to people that have an impact on me, let people hear their story, and then hopefully people can kind of gain something from that. Now we're going to cue Steven here in a moment. Um, I do want to do my idiot fanboy stick real quick. That way I'm not like <laughs> drooling all over them when I get them on the line. And as all you guys know, I like to set the Wayback Machine back to 1995. This story, like most of my music stories, involves one of my best friends, Pat Sheehan. And, um, you know, anybody who was to listen to the show on a continual basis knows the story how it was heavy in the metal. Um, not really because I felt any real connection with metal, but more because I didn't want to listen to, like, like back then, it wasn't like today where you have the Internet and you're exposed to all these new ideas. Basically, where I came from, you listen to heavy metal or you listen to, like, Top 40. And I, since I didn't want to listen to, like, Billy Ocean or Huey Lewis or something, metal was the closest thing to what I felt, like, spoke for me, but it didn't quite make it. So um, Pat had given me a Pegboy tape. He let me listen to it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is, like, amazing. It's, like, so simple yet so powerful. And I took the tape home. I've told this story before, pretty much threw out all my metal tapes. And for anyone under 30, cassette tapes were these things in our days, these little blocky things that had magnetic tape in it that had songs on it. And um, basically I threw out my metal tapes, and I kind of lost track with Pat. I went on the road for three years, two years selling magazines, and one year with Bentley Brothers Circus. And I came back east to York, Pennsylvania is where we were working at that time, and Pat had got a hold of me and convinced me to um, come back to Maryland. I came back. Of course, Pat was always pushing music and, like, his shitty Tromo horror movies. Whatever he was into, he was always really wanted to share with everybody. So as soon as I got back, he's like, here's some tapes. By then, people were kind of switching to CDs, so he was kind of thinning out his tape collection. <laughs> and he gave me, like some, like, some Angry Samoans and some Gorilla Biscuits, and he gave me a Gits tape. So I kind of get home, and I'm like, the Gits entered the Conquering Chicken, what? And, you know, I was still, like, I, I had been listening to a little bit of punk, like some Descendants and stuff while I was on the road, but I worked so much, I was really kind of got out of music for a while. So I listened to it, and I was just, like, blown away. It was the first time I ever heard music, like, made like this with a female singer. And, I mean, there was, like, brilliance in its simplicity and beauty in its honesty. And it had a huge impact on me as an artist. So I go back to Pat the next day. I'm like, I dug all the tapes, but I really like this band, The Gits. And then he tells me the story about The Gits and um, their lead singer, Mia Zapata. She had been murdered. And they were now, the rest of The Gits were with Joan Jett. They had, were doing a project to raise money to find, you know, to, to fund an investigation to find Mia Zapata's murder, murderer. And, um, you know, I was always listening to him. Like a year later went by, and this was something I always remember. I was sitting on my couch watching TV, 
and an episode of Unsolved Mysteries came on. You remember that show with Robert Leach, I think was the guy? Oh, yeah. No, he was, um, um, I don't remember who it was. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, it came out in the trench coat, all like private dick looking. And they had the story of the Gits on there, and in my young, like, not adolescent, I think I was like 20, 21 by then, but in my young brain, like, you think in absolutes when you're young. So I always kind of figured, okay, this punk girl got killed, like this punk singer, nobody's going to really care outside of that community because this community is so far placed, just like if Sid Vicious died or Gigi Allen. Like, it's not – like, you don't think of of people when you're that young as actual people. You just think of them as, like, these these icons, people you listen to. And after I saw that, it just really resonated with me. I was like, wow, like, she had friends and a family, and she was a real person. And this is much bigger than my, like, tiny little perspective of what punk rock is. And then, of course, years later, um, the documentary, The Gits, came out, and I got that. Like, I ordered it the day it came out off a deep discount. And every time people would come over, because I was still living in Virginia Beach at the time, um, we would have parties or whatever, and someone would ask, we like, hey, can you put Law & Order on? Oh, sorry, the cable's out. Let's watch this. And I would, like, make everybody watch The Gits movie. And everybody, like, really, really, like, dug it, and everybody was impacted by the story. I mean, nobody walked away like bored from that movie or like, Oh, I don't want to watch this. Like everybody understood that it's, story and everybody story got something. You can't walk away from, I mean, we watched it, what, th- at least three times in the last four years. At least. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I mean, haven't every gone time. a month without listening to the gits and like since 1995, since I first heard them, that's how yeah. big of an impact they had on me. But I mean, that's my little fanboy stick. Um, did you want to add anything? I mean, what did you think when I first Absolutely. introduced you? I, you know, um, being a female vocalist, it, it's always a big thing for me. I'm, I'm very critical, I think, of any woman who gets up in front of a band, and um, I'm very critical of how they act and how they hold themselves and really who they are because too many times you've got somebody who will put themselves in front of these great musicians, and I really feel like they don't deserve it. You know, they, they're they just up there to look cute. And the major thing that I noticed with Mia... So you saw more as a gimmick type thing then? It is. It really is. You didn't is. take I it mean, seriously if they had a girl singer? No, no, usually? no. Usually not, because, you know, they're just there to look cute. They're there to get fans in. They don't write their own stuff. They're just there for the look, and I can't stand that. But the thing that I noticed with Mia was that she was just her. She was exactly how I would do it. You know, you just go and you just do your thing because you have to, because that's just what you do, not because people are shoving you up there or because, you know, you've just had your hair done for three hours or whatever, but because that's just who you are. And you could tell that this came from her that, you know, when she wrote something and she sang something, she meant it. And, yeah, and that's what came through through the music before I even yeah. saw anything visual about them. Like when I first heard the tape, I was like, this yeah. really struck a chord with me. All right, well, Absolutely. let me go ahead, and I am going to cue in Steve. Yes. <laughs> All right, Steve, Steve, are you with hello. us? Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Well? I want to thank you. I'm sorry? <laughs> Oh, so it sounds like you guys are doing well. We're doing yeah, as we're well doing as we right can thing. for being in the mountains of Tennessee, I guess. Not much going on here. 
But thank you for coming on the show. Um, let me kick off by telling you when I started, I'm 42 years old. I've got friends from all walks of life, coworkers from all walks of life. And when I started promoting the show, and of course I was excited telling people about the show today, um, you know, about half the people I told weren't familiar with you guys. They hadn't heard of you. But the other half who I told who had heard of you, they immediately knew who you were. They knew the story of the Gits, and they were huge fans. It's not huge fans. They knew, like, I didn't have anybody who was like, the Gits, that sounds kind of familiar. Did they do that song, Manic Monday? I mean, they knew exactly (laughs) who you were. And you guys had such a huge impact on your fan base. What do you think it was about the Gits that, like, resonated so strongly with people, even before Mia's death? You know, it's really hard to tell. I, I just think, you know, we were in a scene with a whole lot of bands that became very, very famous and made a lot of money, and we were playing the same venues and with bands like Nirvana and Sublime and No Doubt when they were just coming up, Green Day, and, uh, you know, they went on to become huge stars. But we, we really weren't about that, and although we wouldn't have said no... It wasn't our aspiration. So we had a, I think people that sort of became a a cult following early on, and it was like a club. If you knew about the Gits, then you were a certain kind of person, or you you had a certain kind of understanding of the world, or a certain kind of authenticity. And you might be, you know, a a homeless kid, or you might be like a 45-year-old Vietnam vet, but um, at that time, 45. Uh, right. But in case, you had something in common with the other Git fan. So I would hear homeless kids on the bus over here, them talking about going to the Git show at the OK Hotel. Um, and it wasn't like this mass media explosion like, uh, you know, bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam. And it was more of a grassroots up from the gutter type following and I think that cult following appealed to some people but not to others who were more interested in like you said the music that got jammed down their throat so it became kind of a an inside story or a, or like a, a special club while we were a band and then that just sort of continued afterwards and lent itself to a lot of support and uh, of bands we had afterwards but of also of like the fundraising we did to try to find you killed her Right. Um, what was the relationship with you guys and all the grunge bands coming up at that time? Did they kind of look down at you? Were they inviting of that style of music? Did they just marginalize you and kind of kick you to the side? No, we were actually, um, we toured Europe kind of before we got any press in the U.S. And we got written about in English press that was huge at the time, like Melody Maker and NME. And our first single got reviewed in all these uh, sort of national print magazines. And so there was kind of like this uh, like art music critic type following that we never got to play for because <clears throat> we never got to New York and, some of the pl- and London and some of the places they lived. Um, but bands, sometimes a guitar player in a band or a singer in a band, um, Eddie Vedder or Steve Turner from Mudhoney or Jennifer Finch from L7 or 
would mention us in an article. Like um, I remember there was an article in Spin about grunge, and I don't remember who it was. It was somebody in a huge band said, oh, the next band you should watch out for is the Gits. So I think wow. they were coming. a lot of people were coming to our shows and had heard that we were cool or interesting or different, but, you know, we never got the huge, never quite got to the opportunities that they did. Um, and, and there's probably reasons why as well. Were you guys resistant to being lumped in with the grunge bands or the Seattle-sounding bands, or is it just something that just didn't jive, just didn't click? Well, I mean, if you look at the Seattle bands, the, quote, grunge bands, how many of them have a female singer? Right. None. So at that time, I mean, it was a very sort of boy-heavy scene. All the bands on Sub Pop had, you know, guys who screamed or sang and you know the heavy thing didn't quite fit into the grunge persona that the sub pop owners wanted to create so they had an all-girl band but they were called dickless right and uh, right they had one album it was promoted as like an all-female thing and uh they would play things like the putang festival and and stuff like that so we we didn't quite fit in and actually one of the sub pop owners uh one of the two owners um, was trying to date Mia, was trying to ask her out. And during that time, we opened, we played a huge show with Nirvana at the University of Washington, and we're hanging out with those guys, and he was talking about putting out our records. And Mia didn't like him, and she was like, this guy's an asshole. I really really don't want to go out with him. And... uh, we're like, fine, don't, you know. She's like, okay. And so she kind of dumped him. And uh, he, wow, like the kids say, was butthurt. And we never crossed, <laughs> we never played on a sub-pop bill again for the next four years. It was interesting. So, in so hindsight. you think if Mia hadn't passed away, you would have somehow gotten back in with sub-pop and rode, were, do you think you guys could have ever made it to commercial radio? Or was your sound just too raw and too... I guess raw is the best word, too pure to ever have any kind of commercial value. Even though you had catchy songs, could it have been a commercial sensation? I, you know, I think, you know, really it was uh, a second or third wave of punk that was hitting the radio. If you look at Green Day, for example, right, the the pop alternative to punk. But, I mean, they came from the same scene. They were just kids in high school who started a band and stayed together and wrote good songs, and Andy, uh, Joe Spleen, our guitarist, was perfectly capable of writing pop songs, and he kind of knew how to appeal to a broader audience. Not that he felt like he had to, but I think he kind of wanted to, because no matter what we played, uh, Mia was going to come up with an incredible story or lyric or message in the song. So we could have been playing like, you know, Christmas carols, and she would have had lyrics. Right. It's your soul, right? So let me ask you a question, and just let me know if I'm getting too personal. But this is something I was wondering. This is kind of well, I was wondering while watching the movie, 
you guys have such an incredible bond. At least that's the image I get from the movie. That's how I understand it from following your story. When Mia passed and when you think back on her, do you miss her at all as a fan of Mia Sapata and the Gets? Like, wow, what a huge loss for music. Or is it always strictly like she was just my friend Mia? Like, or is it ever kind of quantified as this was a huge loss for the music world? She had so much less to, like, to say. I mean, I think that's true, but personally, I, I haven't really thought of that until you just said it. I mean, that it was a loss for the music world because we weren't really in the music world. We were <laughs> kind of in our own world and, and in sort of an underground world that wasn't accepted in the world of pop music. So we literally were about, you know, days after Mia's death, um, the guy, uh, the main A&R guy at Atlantic Records was going to offer us a contract that probably would have kept us from having to work jobs for a while and, right. you know, a multi-record right. contract. I don't know if we would have, we would have signed it, but it, since we weren't really accepted by Sub Pop or some of the the resources that we might have locally, we seem to be more accepted in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles where we are seen as something special or different. Um, but uh, in Seattle, it was um, really a grassroots sort of underground following and um, not so much of a, you know, wow, this band's the greatest. It was like, wow, this band doesn't quite sound like the other bands. Should we like them or not? <laughs> right, and I mean, that's what grabs you. And I mean, I heard about the Gits after Mia's death, and the only other time I've ever felt anything was a loss to music was when Brad Knoll died from Sublime. It was kind of the same, like, wow, what else could have he done? Because they had just broke. And it was kind of like that yeah, same I thought, vibe, even though it was after the fact. Looking back, it's kind of like that vibe. I think to a lot of the fans, like, what else could they have done? Yeah, and I had a job booking bands at this all-ages venue called the OK Hotel in Seattle. And uh, I had booked Sublime three times on weeknights, and, you know, 14 people at most had come to see them. But I knew that they were badass, and I kept booking them because they were a great band. And they didn't care if there was 14 people or 14,000 people to see them. They just loved to play music. And I think that in that way we were similar. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's how, if you're a, a fan of music, not just a musician, but a fan, like my friend Andy Dorsey used to always say, he used to play for a band called Onus. He was like, dude, I will, open, I will play the opening of an envelope. I will play anything, <laughs> anywhere, anytime. And, I mean, you really have to have that passion and connect. Like as I was in the metal all those years, and I never connected. It was just something hard I could listen to that was aggressive. And then once I heard that first Pegboy tape, I was like, now I found what speaks directly to me. And I mean, I really think that to be a good musician, you have to actually have like a love affair with the type of music you're playing. Yeah, you know, our guitar player and bass player, Andy and Matt, um, were from New Jersey and New York, respectively, and they would hang out at CBGB's in the 80s, late 80s and uh, probably mid-80s, they were in like middle school and high school, they would have Sunday matinees where some of the most brutal 
hardcore and metal bands would play. Uh, really, like much harder than uh, almost violent hardcore bands like Agnostic Front and the Cro-Mags and uh, just about any you know hardcore band from the area that would play at CBGB's on a Sunday matinee. And so they they came from a very you know liking a very like uh, sort of intense, angry, male-type energy music, uh, much like heavy metal. Um, but, you know, on the East Coast, there were a lot of college radio stations that would play more diverse music than they would in the Midwest. I'm, or South, I'm from Indianapolis. Mia was from Louisville. And uh, my family actually came from Tennessee. And, you know, I mean, the hardest we got was you know, Tom Petty, or um, right. the most interesting music on the radio at the time. And there was a few, like, m- you might hear a Ramon song once, like, late, late at night. But mm-hmm. I just didn't feel like I was exposed to any any punk music. So yeah. once I heard what? that, I was like, you just blew me away. What were the first punk bands you were exposed to, and where did that happen at? How did that come about? I think it was, I think it was uh, the Ramones, and it was probably like late at night on some kind of like short-lived, uh, like indie or punk music night. Or back then, it was all called either hardcore or new wave. Um, and then I tried to find different new wave bands, but none of them really had any guts. It was all kind of. Mm-hmm amorous and like English poppy sounding stuff, but at least it wasn't. Well, why didn't you, you know, just YouTube it, Steve? Why didn't you just jump on your computer and YouTube the kind of music you wanted? Right. <laughs> what, they didn't have that back then? No. I, that's something I don't think kids today understand. Like you had to work for it to be a fan yeah. of something back then. It was all word of mouth and going to the record stores and, like, scrubbing through, like, the discount bin to try to find something that, like, wasn't top 40 music. Yeah, it was like you had to be exposed with somebody with a mixtape from someone that liked you that was from yeah. somewhere else. Um, All right, well, let's talk about the um, Bobbin for Pavement, the Rat House compilation. How did that come about? And, I mean, that's really your guy's first recording, right? was on that compilation. Uh, yeah, we recorded like five songs in a couple of days, and we put two of them on there. Uh, we organized that whole uh, record because we couldn't get anyone interested in putting out our records. So we said, well, we met actually with the guys at Sub Pop and asked them, you know, kind of, will you help us out? Will you put out a single? And they, they basically said no. Um, but I did get information from them about how to do it. And I'm like, fuck it. I'm not going to wait for anyone else. Can you swear on here? Um, yeah. Swear yeah. away. We do it all the time. <laughs> Let's put out our own record. We encourage it. So we, just, we were like, we're not going to wait around. We're going to try this ourselves. So we kind of we started our own record label from the house we all lived in called the Rat House. And... We organized our friends, and we didn't have any money, so we played shows to raise money to put it out. And we thought, well, we'll just put out our own record. We made a thousand of them, and they all sold. It was weird. Wow. 
Nice. Do you yeah, think like um, – I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, like I said, not just in Seattle. They sold all over the world. Wow. All the bands that were on there went on to either be on major labels or, you know, huge indie labels. Gas Huffer was on Epitaph for a few records. Right. They're still together. Hammerbox got signed to Epic or uh, London, a major label, and put out a couple of records and then broke up. The Derelicts got, were, got signed to Sub Pop and did records for them. Um, the Gits played for a while and then ended. And I can't think of who else is on there, but all those bands were happy they were on it later. They were like, that really helped us out. And that's what, that was our goal, is just to help out other bands and ourselves. Do you, do you feel like nowadays that kids are cheated from that whole do-it-yourself experience because they don't have to pound the pavement, they don't have to make flyers, like they can pretty much do anything they want from their computer, stick something up on YouTube, tweet it, Facebook it. I mean, do you feel like that's a shortcut? Do you feel like it's even harder because it's so oversaturated online now? What's your feeling about the new social media and music? I don't know. I mean, I work with with young people, and uh, they're still doing, like, handmade fanzines as well as as social media stuff and making art and starting bands. I mean, I, I think it's it's something that they – that the cool arty kids kind of see as still still really important. And they wouldn't have known, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't have known about it back in the day, you know, but they learned about right. it because there was a movie about the gits or they heard about it on social media. So I think that there's more of everything and there's a lot of good stuff out there and a lot of DIY stuff that, that's just fun you know. to do, and they're doing it. Yeah. Now, the Gitch documentary, that. do you think that that gained you guys any more of a fan base? Like people who have never heard of the Gitch ran across a documentary and then became diehard Gitch fans? Or do you think only diehard Gitch fans were going out and buying that DVD? Dude, I have no idea. That <laughs> That had a very short run in theaters that when it first came out, which looked great, um, but just in a few cities, and it wasn't publicized. The company that put out the DVD, uh, I don't know how many they made. I never saw it in stores. I think that thing went underground, got put in a warehouse somewhere, and somebody uploaded it to YouTube, and that's where people are seeing it. But I don't know... Who's seeing who's that documentary? I was surprised that you guys had. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like I had heard about it ahead of time. And like I said, I ordered it off Deep Discount, which was a site I used to get all my DVDs from back in, I guess they call it the early aughts now, like 2003, 2005, whatever. And, I mean, I remember when, the, like I, I think I had saw something about it on Interpunk, maybe is where I got the, or maybe it was on MySpace. Yeah, it was one, those were the three major sites I was on in that time period. And I was like, it's coming out today. And, like, I got on the day it came out, and I ordered one from Deep Discount. So I thought that DVD was pretty well-received. I didn't know it was so underground. Like, I thought it was kind of a bigger production. 
Well, I think that it, the company that put it out was kind of a front. It was during a company formed during the like dot com boom, and it was a bunch of guys from huge labels that paid themselves giant salaries and got uh, venture capital, and then put out like a Paris Hilton movie that nobody saw, or maybe they did. Wow. Bought our movie for some reason, and. Um, and then buried it. So the company folded, the guys took their money and left. So it was kind of a, a victim of somebody's business scheme. And my friends who made the movie really couldn't have seen it coming and didn't know any better. Yeah. Wow. And to sell Hi. the movie to this company. So um, on Evil Stig, how did that come about? Did you guys contact Joan Jett? Did she contact you? What was the evolution of that? This was about 19, it was like 94, we were still kind of grieving. We had just started playing as a three-piece without Mia and try, really doing so kind of as music therapy for ourselves and to stick together and for Mia. And uh, um, one day I, I was watching MTV when they used to have music on MTV, music videos, Music and you say on MTV? What? They used to. I remember it. <laughs> what kind of man of the past are you? I don't. I'm not. I don't know. <laughs> I got frozen. I know so many like twenty year olds listening to this. Like, huh? <laughs> uh, isn't there like an MTV Five that has music on it now? Oh, there yeah, may I be. I've been Shoot, so tuned out of that whole scene for so many years. I have no idea. Um. Mm. Well, Joan Jett had a video on there where where the theme and the story was she reenacted Mia's attacker attacking Mia, but Joan Jett played Mia. And at the end, I mean, he stalks her, he follows her, he chases her to a subway station um, or something like that. And instead of murdering her, Joan Jett kicks him in the balls and runs away. Nice. And at the end, it says, this video, this video is, is dedicated to me as a Pada. And I was like, well, I don't know. It's kind of like a revisionist story, and it's not really what happened, and you never even asked what happened, and how do you know what happened and why are you dedicating this video to someone you never met or cared to talk to their band? So I wrote her a letter and I just sent it to Blackheart Records, you know, Joan Jett care of Blackheart Records in New York that said, hey, Joan, when I was a kid, I was a big fan. I love rock and roll and, and uh, I saw your video on MTV and although it, it's very well produced. I wonder why you dedicated it to our singer, and if you really want to help, you can give us some money. I said it nicer than that. And right. I got a handwritten letter back about six weeks later from some hotel stationery in Germany that said, oh, yeah, you guys, I want to help out, anything I can do. And a little while later, her manager called me up at home and said, Joan's going to be in town. Do you want to meet for a drink? And we reluctantly went and kind of said our piece. And she said, 
no, we want to help. What can we do? And then her manager said, start a band. Why don't you play together? And, uh, you know, wow. I don't know what his, what his uh, motivation was. I think it could have been partly like, you know, let's get hip with the Seattle scene. Let's get a grunge band to back Joan and see what happens. Or we don't have any songs. Let's play get songs with Joan singing and see if they'd fly. But... The idea was to raise money for the investigation and raise consciousness about you know, women's ability to not be fucked with at night or any time. Mm-hmm. So we, we achieved that by, by touring and talking on the radio and sort of discussing it. And, and uh, you know, she sang her songs that we did better than the Get songs, but she gave it a really good try and she um she was great to work with her people her like 1970s style mafioso management uh, were total old school hitmen sort of style idiot music guys who thought it was ridiculous that we weren't playing arenas and we were playing small clubs and you know jones better than that and they, uh, we didn't get paid, and we didn't get laid, and we didn't raise any money after the tour. And, uh, yeah, it was interesting. I'm still in touch with Joan, and we're still friends. And um, I don't think that I would be her drummer in those circumstances, but uh, it's great to see her. That's cool. Um, if it ever sounds like I'm cutting you off, it's because there's a slight delay on here, so sometimes it sounds silent, and I'm just trying to jump in and fill the gap. But I just wanted to let you know I'm not trying to cut you off. We're getting close to the 15-minute mark, though. Danielle, if you want to give everyone the phone number, if they have any questions for Steve and they want to call in. Of course. Our number here is 646-478-3554. Remember that 646-478-3554. If it takes me just a minute to answer your call, it's because I'm on the line somewhere else. So please right on. Um, on the Evil Stig album, how did you guys kind of pick which songs were going to go on there, which Git songs were going to go on there? Was that a hard process, or did you know exactly what you wanted to do? I think we had a deadline for a show in Portland, or I think our first show was in Portland, Oregon, and uh, it was like the North by Northwest, kind of like the South by Southwest Music Festival, but north in the Northwest. And we got together as much as we could, like a 10-song set, and they were half Git songs and half of her songs, so we kind of met in the middle. But we only had like four rehearsals, so it was what we could manage and what she could sing and learn the lyrics to. But even halfway through the tour, she was still reading Mia's lyrics. Wow. Was it pretty well-respected, the whole tour? Pretty much. She'd put the lyrics on the floor and read them. Uh, but I think that's you know that's her <laughs> that's her comfort zone. I learned her songs by heart. Cool. And, and then how long did that process? How long did Evil Stig stay together? Well, I guess together about a year and a half or two years. We did this tour, and then uh, uh, it's a long story. <laughs> but we did play. A- in a short amount of time, um, 
everywhere from Boston. We played CBGBs in New York. Uh, we played the Viper Room, which was Johnny Depp's club in Los Angeles where River Phoenix right. died. And mm-hmm. uh, that was a wild show because Sherry Curry, or the, I guess she was the singer in The Runaways, showed up at the show and started grabbing Joan's feet, saying, that's my song, I get to sing it, and trying to climb up on stage. And, uh, oh, crazy. We so she had had a few. Pardon? She had had a few by that point then. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but um, I don't know how, because it was so crowded, it was impossible to get a drink. But she, uh, Joan was like, the hell off the stage and like kicked her off so she couldn't get on. It was quite funny. Wow. And have all those memories. Amazing. I mean, I did the band thing for a little while, but I don't have nearly like those kind of potent memories that you have. That's just amazing to me. Let me know. I didn't know who people were when I was in contact with them. It's only later that I would find out. I mean, it just seemed like a random person and I mean, it was the same with uh, with Nirvana when they were playing. We're like, oh, here's this band that everyone likes them, but who are they? And next thing you know, they had the number one MTV song or Grammy or something. So it was all kind of before these people were huge, and you just didn't know who would be band. And that's why I always think I listen to bands really closely now because they could have something really special to say, whether they're popular or not. They could be a really rad band. Yeah. Do you think a band that's totally over-commercialized, like, say, a Lady Gaga-type band, could actually have anything to say? I mean, I don't listen to radio music at all. I'm so disconnected from that world. I still listen to the same 50 punk CDs I've been listening to for 20 years. No, I don't think she can have anything to say except for about commercializing music, capitalism, and sexism. Right. It could be a lesson. Agreed. Like... <laughs> a yeah. cautionary tale? Is that all they're good for? Cautionary. So I see um, this list of other bands you played in, which I knew, of course, about Evil Stig, and I had actually heard of um, Dancing French Liberals, but I had not heard of St. Bushmills Choir, the Pinkos, and Blonde Mexicans. Did you play drums in all those? Do you play another instrument? Or have you always just straight played drums? I just played drums. I sang a bit in the Pinkos. I think of those bands, the St. Bushmills Choir was a a seven-piece Irish Celtic punk band with accordion, penny whistle, violin, guitar, bass, and drums. Uh, And that was kind of a local phenomenon, Northwest phenomenon. We were too big a band and uh, too insane of a band to tour much. Uh, uh, but in those, I mean, the crowds would be so rowdy that, and they'd be so big in the clubs that they would be throwing stuff. When they liked us, they threw full bottles of beer and and full drinks <laughs> on us, and it was it was a very strange. I mean, back in the punk days in England and in the hardcore days in the U.S., the fans would spit on the band. Right. That was like good. That meant they liked them. But yeah. they started something in Seattle where they would they would just 
throw beer on you. And I, <laughs> my drums would be just soaked in beer and uh, <laughs> so our gear would get destroyed and uh, it was uh, not really a sustainable industry <laughs> to be in that band. They love you. <laughs> they loved us. Uh, it was crazy because they would destroy the clubs too. Um, <laughs> the Pinkos was more of a, it was a duet with Vanessa Vesalka, who's a, she's a, an author and was a labor organizer uh, for the Longshoremen, and she, I saw her in her band Bell, and it was a rock band, and she sang, but it was very noisy, and there were two guitars, bass, keyboards, and drums. And I saw her sing, and I was like, man, this woman would be great. Her band is terrible, but she would be a great singer. So I didn't want to interrupt like her message with a bunch of noise, so right. it's just her playing acoustic guitar distorted and me playing drums and backups. So we wrote an album that was like a more of a political, every song was in some way, you know, political or uh, message oriented or it wasn't as deeply personal and universal as Mia's lyrics, but I thought she was a great lyricist and singer and uh, we formed a, a two-piece um, and played with a lot of bands like the White Stripes and uh, all kinds. But I think of all the bands I played with, that record, the Pinkos album, was probably up there with the Gitz records. It was on Empty nice. which was a label out of Seattle. Now, I saw something online at the, taking place on the Comet. This happened on 7-7, of course, on the anniversary. Um, they had a 20th anniversary of Mia's passing with a bunch of bands playing Git songs. Were you guys involved with that at all, or how did that come about? Oh, I, you guys not even I really didn't have any idea. Uh, somebody said it was, they were going to do something for it. Uh, but the only thing that anyone did, well, I, I moved out of Seattle right after the trial ended. I couldn't be there anymore. So I moved to the Bay Area, Oakland. And uh, Seattle, the, the movement, there's been sort of this <laughs> this uh, fan-based movement and bands that are involved who love the gits and they get together on anniversaries like her death and her birthday and the 25th, I think, was her birthday. They did a, a gig and it got press and they played different versions of git songs in different ways. And I... It looked like a lot of fun. I saw a video on YouTube, I think. But no, I wasn't there. It wasn't to raise any money. It was just sort of a homage to the Gits. Which feels good. That's cool. It's powerful. 20 years later, and I mean, that's like people are still getting together to celebrate, like, what an impact you got. I just hope you know what an impact you guys had on your fan base. Even though you don't think you had a huge fan base, you had a huge impact. Yeah. Uh, it's really hard for me to to dig. I, it's um, I was surprised that you, you were doing the show. I'm always surprised, but like every couple of months, someone calls me to do an interview or for a quote in a book, and uh, <laughs> I'm shocked every time because I, you know, we never had the, you know the commercial success, and I, I don't know why. 
in my brain, maybe somehow I connect that with popularity or importance in the music world, but it's kind of heartening to know that there's this other side of people that that look that look that are really looking for like quality or or something that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean that was my whole thing when I was in a band. Like I much rather have a hundred solid people that get us, you know, like they really understand where we're coming from and singing the lyrics back to us and they're like really love us than have a thousand people who are just like into us because we're the new hot flavor. So I mean like what what you guys have is definitely more powerful because the people like I said, when I told people about it, people who heard about you knew exactly who you were. It wasn't anybody like, oh, yeah, sort of, maybe. So, I mean, you get guys yeah, that I don't definitely know. have that impact. And you might think of in that way. Yeah. It's very cool. Okay, I had one more question here. Um, Danielle, did you have anything that you wanted to ask? I, you know, I've actually just kind of been sitting back and hearing all the great stories, and it just, it's one of those things that's like, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it was obviously you didn't even realize you were part of this thing that was just bigger, um, and for you to still be surprised, like by you know people like us calling up and saying, "Hey, you want to be on the show?" and things like that. I mean, it, it's just yeah, you guys were part of something a lot bigger than you, and I can't imagine how that would have felt. You know, I mean, was it something you ever in a million years thought? you know, this is going to be something, or was it just you just did it because you loved it? No, I think we were too busy putting up flyers and trying to get people to come to our shows and figuring out how to get gigs and how to do tours. I was booking all the tours. I was, uh, it was completely do-it-yourself because really no one, no one came forward to help us. Um, and that didn't, so we kept going ourselves So. I think we are so busy being in it and trying to give our best on stage um, mm-hmm. while working shit jobs, getting sick, um, having personal issues, trying to tour, being you know 24 and trying to live in a city and rehearse and be a band in this, in- this incredible environment of competition for the three venues that had live music. Uh, we knew... I knew, and I think we all knew that that Mia was brilliant. That her her mm-hmm. her lyrical her phrasing was something really special. But we were so close as friends that it wasn't like she was on a pedestal. I mean, we all none of us felt like great musicians. We just had something to say, and that's why we did it. And Mia never felt like she was anything special either. And I think that comes out in her performance and her lyrics and definitely we get through to people somehow yeah what are you doing today creatively wise are you still playing drums are you trying to write uh what are you doing to get those creative juices out today good question i don't know i'm playing drums a little bit um taking lessons it's never too late to learn and uh, definitely I'm always trying to form a band, so if um, if either of you guys are interested in coming out to the Bay Area, we could start something up. Yeah, yeah but we're, quite a commute the, for me. we're, we're <laughs> kind of stuck here for a few more years. 
Okay, well, you're ready. Yeah, you know. And then New Orleans. Well, yes, New Orleans. That's our end game, is end up in New Orleans Mm -hmm. in a few years. Well, I definitely want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, There's a question I always ask fans on the way out. What's your best touring story? Funniest or scariest or best thing, the most memorable tour story? I don't think that's appropriate for any kind of uh, internet or live radio show. Oh, boy, uh, that was a good one then. <laughs> had to do enough. with um, a spanking incident in Norfolk, Virginia. Oh, Norfolk, ground. <laughs> <laughs> that makes complete sense now. Mm-hmm. Norfolk is one of my all-time favorite towns. I've lived probably in seven different states, I think, and the one place, the only place I ever lived that I really loved was Norfolk, Virginia Beach. Really? Yeah, it's cool. And I lived in Sacramento, Florida, all over, and always been a big Norfolk fan, definitely. Alrighty, Steve. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking an hour out to talk with us. I know the fans got a lot out of it. Um, was there anything else you wanted to promote or drive anybody towards any of your Twitters, pages, Facebook, anything like that? Um, well, you can go to thegits.com, and I think you can watch the movie there. And Plus, a lot of fans have made YouTube videos. We never made a video, but lots of people have done it spontaneously, and there's some really cool animation. I, the, a high school kid, I think, in Texas. Um, but they're they're all posted on the website, so you could see uh, live stuff, and it's thegits.com. Check it out. Awesome. All right, so I also I have a political show I do on Sundays. If you ever want to call and talk politics, just hit me on my Facebook. I'll be more than happy to have you on our political show. It sounds like you've got a lot to say politically. I just don't like getting into those subjects on the music show. But if you ever want to come on a political show, um, Sunday we do the ignorance equation. Just drop me a line, Steve. Of course. I don't want to get you in trouble. I uh, won't no, get me we, in trouble. We've said some pretty interesting things so far. So we, if we haven't got kicked off yet, then they're not listening to us. Okay. Yeah, I mean. Well, to you, and thanks for listening. Thanks. All righty, Steve. Thanks awesome. a lot. And this one goes out to Mia. Um, and the gifts, and I want to thank everybody for listening to Wednesday Night Musical Osmosis. And before you play, I was trapped in that bottle, but now I'm free. Free, free.